Welcome to The Big Deal, where we'll unlock the details and drama behind the business of sport in Australia and around the world. Join me, Warren Treadray, along with Andrew Montessi, Dion Heyman and our expert guests as we take you into the boardroom for behind-the-scenes access and analysis of contracts, negotiations, endorsements and more. Don't forget to sign up at www.thebigdeal.au for a weekly wrap of the latest deals, breaking news and many more exclusive opportunities. Welcome to the fourth episode of The Big Deal, where we unlock the details and drama behind the business of sport in Australia and right around the world. Welcome to AFL legend Warren Treadray. And Treaders, we're tackling a big topic with a great guest today. Yeah, absolutely, Dion, and uh, I'm looking forward to this one. Chloe Dalton is her name. She is founder of the Female Athlete Project. She plays for the GWS Giants in the AFLW, and she's one of Australia's very few triple sport elite athletes. Yeah, it's not only one sport's not enough. I'll tell you, a triple is amazing. After playing in the WNBL with the Sydney Uni Flames, coach uh, transitioned over to rugby, winning the Olympic gold medal with the Australian Rugby Sevens team, was awarded an Order of Australia medal for service to sport. She then decided that's not enough, you know, we're going to head over and play Aussie Rules, making a debut for Carlton in the AFLW before moving to her current club, the GWS Giants, in 2021. Chloe founded the Female Athlete Project to amplify the stories and news from the stars of women's sport in Australia. And it is the fastest growing platform for women's sport in the country. Welcome, Chloe. Sounds like you're a little busy nowadays. <laughs> There's a fair bit going on. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. No, we're wrapped to have you on board here. Now, you've got a lot going on uh, on and off the field. Can you give us a bit of a glimpse into your daily life and what a typical week looks like? Yeah, typical week is pretty busy these days. We're in AFLW season at the moment. So um, for AFLW, we're still part-time. We're hoping to move into a full-time space over the next few years, but it's training four or five days a week um, and then obviously games on weekends and, and traveling and whatever that might look like depending on the on the draw. I also work part-time with the Giants media team and then running the female athlete project on the side. So spend most of most of my day kind of the nine till nine till three kind of work day doing a lot of that stuff, uh, the media stuff and then I head out to Homebush to start training for the afternoon into the evening. Where do you sleep? Um, just a couple of hours a night, usually. Sounds exhausting, uh, Chloe. Um, why playing three sports? Why switch and, and why did you pick the ones that you did? Yeah, it's a great question. I've had an interesting sporting career so far and I've loved the change that has come with it. Um, I started basketball when I was about 11 or 12 years old and worked my way up through the representative teams and the state ranks and when I was about 18 or 19 years old I got the chance to play in the WNBL with the Flames and and I got there and I kind of felt like I was a step closer to my dream of representing Australia and I'd I'd always wanted to go to the Olympics and win a gold medal since I watched Kathy Freeman win gold in in Sydney as a little kid and that dream kind of took a bit of a hit when I got to the Flames and spent a lot of time sitting on the bench I was like Patty Mills towel waving level of like sitting on the bench, giving out high fives. I, I was good at it, but I probably had to realize that I wasn't going to be playing for the Opals anytime soon. I knew that I was still a long way off that. And so I went home and I typed into Google list of Olympic sport and I had to look through a few different options. I looked at Taekwondo, but I thought I was a bit late in life to start martial arts. And I looked at triathlon 
but I hated swimming, so I crossed that off the list. And then I saw that Rugby Sevens was going to be in the Olympics for the first time in Rio in 2016. And I'd grown up in a rugby family. I, I grew up on the northern beaches of Sydney and would always go down to the local, local footy field and watch my brothers play rugby. And so I had a really good understanding of the game. I'd, I'd never played it because I didn't ever see girls or women playing. But I think I was about three years out from Rio at the time. And I just thought, I'm going to give this a crack. And so I think that transition for me was all about wanting to chase that dream of the Olympic gold medal um, and then fast-forwarding to winning the gold medal, coming back. I played another season of, of Rugby Sevens and I'd seen the AFLW on television and because I'd grown up in Sydney, I didn't have a great understanding of the game. I'd kind of see the, the Swans team playing but I thought they tackled weird and I was like, what is going on here? But when I saw the combination of skills, I was like, I, I think that what I have as an athlete would be able to do well in this game. And, yeah, so so went down and played a season of VFLW with Carlton and was picked up as a rookie um, to play in the AFLW and, and I've absolutely loved it. I don't often tell my my rugby coaches, but I reckon footy has been my favourite sport so far. Well, you just mentioned an unbelievable change in transitioning from an athlete's perspective, but do you have to be, do you think because of, you know, the different sports on offer or, you know, not, you know, the AFLW season now 10 games as opposed to a full 22 that men have got, the, the female athletes nowadays have to be a bit more adaptive like yourself to, to rotate between different sports and transition as well? Yeah, I think I've been part of quite a unique point in time where we're in we're still in that part-time space with these shorter length seasons I'm quite fortunate um, that I have been able to go between the different sports for example when I was at Carlton in 2019-2020 I was training for both AFLW and preparing for the Tokyo Olympics at the same time so it was it was kind of this unique setup that allowed me to do both I think as time progresses and, and we move into that full-time space with hopefully longer seasons there won't be as much freedom to do it but I think there is a level of adaptability that is required for female athletes at this point in time because you have to be able to to make a living, whether that's through having a full-time office-type job outside of playing footy or, or whether it's examples of basketball players over in the States who, like Lauren Jackson, for example, played in the WNBA her entire career but then had to go over to Europe to actually make money. There's still a lot of athletes who are, who are almost playing year-round just to try and make enough money to, to make a living. You've played a couple of Olympic sports already in um, basketball and, and rugby, uh, and then you've got AFLW, which you, you're with now, um, Chloe. I mean, how do they compare in terms of professionalism? Uh, because, uh, you know, they're, they're all pretty different. Yeah, so when I first started in the WNBL, uh, it was back in, gosh, it was a while back now, 20, 2012, about 10 years ago. So I think the the standards of professionalism over the past decade have continue to progress and, and we've seen a collective bargaining introduced for the WNBL. It's one of the oldest women's competitions in the country. I think it's been around for over 40 years now, but it has really struggled in that professionalism space. So when I was there, we were training a few nights a week. Again, um, people still had to have full-time jobs outside of it. Um, and as a rookie, I, I wasn't getting paid a huge amount of money, about enough money to cover my petrol. Then I moved into the Rugby 7 space and that by far has, has been the best example of what a professional program can look like in my experience. Um, we saw when it was going to be introduced into the Olympics, Rugby Australia, the Australian Olympic Committee, uh, introduced funding to allow us to be full-time. It, it previously had been a camp-based type system and I rocked up and it meant you had full-time access to uh, strength and conditioning, dietitians, physiotherapists, medical staff, 
all of those things, exactly what the men's program had as well. The salaries were uh, different to the men, but I think the biggest the biggest thing that we um, we got out of it was the ability to train full time and have these additional sessions to do skills and video analysis. There's a part of it where sometimes I feel like I've almost then taken a backward step going into this AFLW program, which is still part-time. We saw with the most recent CBA negotiations in AFLW, we're definitely taking steps in the right direction in terms of salary and and different standards that are required for the players. But it's it's a really different story when you become a part-time athlete after you've already been a full-time athlete because you have to find different sources of of revenue to to pay rent and pay your grocery bills. But I think the biggest difference I notice is when you're a full-time athlete, you have the ability to put all of your energy just into your sport. So a lot of the time I'll, I'll work a full day and then, and then you get to AFLW training and some of my teammates work physical jobs, they're landscapers or carpenters or whatever that might look like. And you get to training and you almost have to find this, like this second wind of like, all right, I've got to get myself motivated because if I don't do it, I'm not going to perform on the weekend. So it's, it's this really tricky balance. And I think aside from the financial aspect, that's probably the biggest difference for me. And you talk about that financial aspect. Can you give us a sort of an, a, a rundown for top-end athletes in those sports you played or also the ones who are starting out from obviously AFLW to what you saw at the Olympics and obviously in basketball as well? How, how different does it range? And, you know, you talk about that part-time. What does that look like? And How much sort of ballpark is that? And all the ones like the Lauren Jacksons of the world, the, once you hit the top, what sort of cash you reckon you'd be earning? Yeah, so if I look at um, if I look at rugby sevens, when we first started um, as full time athletes back in uh, twenty fourteen, I believe it was when they centralised the the contract values were ten twenty thousand dollars for almost a full time contract, and and they've continued to increase recently. the The minimum salary has increased to over fifty k in that rugby sevens program, which um, I believe should be equal across the men's and women's programs, and then athletes who are on the top tiers have the ability to earn more than that. And there's also additional medal incentive funding that comes through and is performance-based. If we look at AFLW as an example, the in the recent CBA negotiations, the minimum has jumped up to about $39,000, $40,000 for the players on the bottom tier uh, and the players on the top tier. I believe there's 40 players now in the AFLW competition who are earning $100,000 or more. There are different avenues for players to earn money through additional services agreements and and different ambassadorships um but i think the the average salary is probably around that that 40 to 50k because of the way that the tiers are are split that there's such a large number of players on those tier three tier tier four contracts in the aflw there's a there's a real split i think cricket australia is probably the best example of the way that their uh collective bargaining agreements with the men's and their mous have allowed the female players to be rewarded for their success domestically and on the world stage and, and we can see those players earning upwards of 100 200k and then additional ambassadorships and sponsorship agreements on top of that as well what are some of the blockers or probably barriers more so that women's sport now faces um, from going to you know we've seen a, a huge rise in participation and performance and aflw classic you look at the game style from this season to the first season is huge, but are there any other blockers or barriers that you face that you think need to be knocked down for it to go into its stratosphere? Yeah, I think uh, coming back to that part-time piece, to me that that's the biggest step I think that needs to be taken to allow athletes just to be completely devoted to their craft. And second to that is is access to those resources. I think traditionally we've seen young girls not have access to the right pathways to allow them to 
compete in a professional environment. So I think within that, it's so important that young girls have access to play whatever sport it is that they want throughout their childhood years. And, and we see that happening now, even in contact sports like Aussie rules and rugby union, rugby league, where girls in the past haven't been allowed to participate. So I think it's really cool that we're now seeing that pathways are in place. But I think within that, we need to make sure there's really good access to good coaching as well. I think traditionally we've seen that that girls and women might not get access to the best coaches and, and it's really important that they're actually putting development pathways in there as well, whether it's whether it's men or women coaching these young girls and, and young women as they come through, just making sure there is access to things like that so that when they get to that elite level, they've had access to those things throughout their lifespan. So when they're there, they're, they're as best prepared as they can be. Clearly one of the other barriers is, uh, is media coverage, Chloe. And, uh, you know, it's pretty obvious that more eyeballs means more cash. Um, your own website uh, trumpets that uh, 40% of uh, participants in sport are female, yet they only receive 4% of the sports media coverage. What needs to happen for women's sport to get more airtime, probably both on, on free-to-air as well as, as pay channels? Yeah, I think it's been a really interesting space we've started to see a lot of data that's coming out around um, broadcast and viewership numbers that that more people each year are engaging with women's sport Um, I think the more that it's on television and the more people see it the more they have an understanding of what a great product it is Um, and there's also some really interesting research that's come out Um, there's a report called the fan project report and what they did is they got um, access to millions I think it's about 10 million data points worth of people's social media usage and and what they've worked out is that people who are fans of women's sport are what they're calling these fluid fans and so they move away from these traditional metrics because fans of women's sport can't necessarily find it on free-to-air tv they can't necessarily find it on on paid tv a lot of the time so they've actually had to engage with women's sport in a really different way whether it's through following these athletes on social media whether it's through trying to um, buy their team's merchandise online and using e-commerce rather than just doing it because they can't necessarily go to the game and do it it's it's this limited access it's meant these fans have developed into becoming fluid fans and so I think it's really important in that space to actually recognise that just because they're engaging with sport in a different way doesn't mean you can always measure those metrics as we always have for men's sport. So I think that's a really good starting point to to understand that, yes, we're, we're getting increased viewers for, for different sporting events that are on TV. We've seen amazing examples of, of crowd numbers in, in places um, like Barcelona, the women's football team over there. And I love... To touch on that example, I love it because what they did is it's they put out some really simple ideas around marketing their team so that people knew who the players were. They put games on at reasonable time so that kids could come along. They made ticket, tickets really cheap and then they played good football and they on multiple occasions sold over 90,000 tickets for these women's football games in, in a space that's been traditionally all about men's football. So I think there's these, these really cool studies and these really great um, examples of when you actually do it right, the audience is there. Um, it's just about tapping into the audience and making sure that they're actually aware of it as well. And is that the reason, part of the reason why you started the Female Athlete Project, just to get into different areas and get different exposure? Yeah, there's a couple of big reasons. My favourite thing to do when I do get a day off is to head down to the beach, grab a coffee and the newspaper, and I flick to the back page and read about sport. And 
I really struggle to find stories about women's sport. I, I often will try and count and I might find a story about Ash Barty or Sam Kerr and, and often that's about it. And I felt really frustrated by it. And rather than continuing to complain about it, I just wanted to do something really proactive. And another big driver behind what I do is when I was at Rugby Sevens, I was an ambassador for Our Watch, um, which is all about campaigning um, for the prevention of domestic violence. And and the biggest underlying cause is this gender inequality that exists and this power imbalance that exists. And, and I love how prevalent sport is in our society. Um, it's, it's such a big part of what we do. It invades our living rooms. Um, people take their kids down to the park to play sport and, and kick the footy or, or have a, have a hit with the, with a bat or a cricket bat, whatever that might look like. And, and I think, it's really cool as an athlete that I actually have the ability when I go out the way I carry myself, I've actually got the ability to change people's attitudes about where women sit in society. And that's a really big part of what I'm trying to do with the female athlete project. So often it feels like this massive uphill battle competing against trolls and people with these really backwards ideas about women more broadly in society, but where women sit in this, in this sporting landscape. And I think a really big part of it is is the visibility piece and that's that's what we're trying to do just increase the visibility of women in sport and, and try and highlight some of these incredible achievements that female athletes particularly Australian female athletes we've got some of the best athletes in the entire world across a range of different sports and and they deserve to be household names but a lot of them simply haven't been because they don't receive the mainstream media coverage so how how do you make them more visible what's what are your key weapons to try and to achieve your goals here Chloe? Uh, one of our key things is storytelling. Um, it's a it's a really powerful tool um, that we find is what I love is is when we share a podcast. So so we we work across um, our podcast. We've got a lot of social media content. We've got merchandise. Um, and we've got uh, a weekly news email that goes out as well. And I think one of the things I love hearing from people who listen to the podcast who might not be hugely invested in women's sport or, or sport in general, but a lot of time they'll hear someone's story who they they've never heard their name before. And they'll say, I listened to your podcast with Belle Brockoff, the snowboarder, the other day. I haven't heard of her before, but the next time she competes, I cannot wait to watch because now I'm so invested in her story, what she's overcome through her injuries and the setbacks that she's overcome. And I think that's a really great way to create that connection for, for people who might not have had access or, or had that visibility before. Um, and I think kind of from there, it it allows you to to build that that kind of relationship. And I think for us, we wanted to also make sure in our social media space that we were providing really up-to-date highlights and information when things happen. Because again, like I touched on with the newspaper, I don't hear about women's sport on the radio. In the lead up to the rugby league grand final that that has just happened over the weekend, I was listening to a lot of radio ads that would come up and it was a double header. So NRLW grand final and NRL grand final, same day, same location. A lot of the ads that come out just talk about the men's game. So there's there's this issue in this space where a lot of the time it's almost as if the women's game doesn't exist. So it's this really tricky battle of of almost trying to remind people consistently like we're still here. And it's a real it's a really hard fight a lot of the time, but but we just want to use our channels to do it in a really positive way. I think we we chatted about that with my team at the beginning is a lot of the time we'll call things out if, if there's things that aren't right, but we want to do it in a really positive way. That's one of our things is, is we want to celebrate these achievements rather than just making it this, this negative slog. Well, funding is key to growth and survival in women's sport. There's no doubt about that. And not all money is good money though. And uh, it's we've seen an interesting one in the last week. Netball Australia's copped some heat for uh, taking a big wad of cash from mining magnate Gina Reinhart. 
With capital being so critical in the women's game, Chloe, how do you juggle that uh, and, and find the right balance in terms of taking money from places where not everyone's going to be happy about it? Yeah, I think it's a really tricky one. And I don't know what the right answer is. If we look at sport more broadly, we, we see that um, companies like Gina Reinhart's, we see betting companies and we see alcohol companies probably lead the way um, in that space. If you, if you look at rugby league and, and games like that, it's it's kind of everywhere, right? So a lot of the time it almost seems unavoidable and particularly for women's sport that has traditionally struggled with investment. When you have an opportunity like that, it is often hard to turn down. I think if you look at that example, I've seen um, Shani Norder, an um, ex-netball player, come out and, and speak out about it um, on Twitter. And it's probably an interesting one because Netball Australia did have a bid. Obviously, it's a different situation because Gina has actually come forward and sponsored it, so it hasn't taken any equity in the game. But Netball Australia did have an opportunity to go through and have a bid from from a different investor who would have been uh, ethically and environmentally more sustainable. So, so I think that's probably where some of these people who've spoken out about it are kind of saying you actually had an opportunity to choose a different option. It wasn't like you didn't have any options and you've then just been like, oh, Gina's come along, we'll just go with the mining company kind of thing. I think that example probably they could have made a, a more sustainable decision, but that would have meant giving up some some equity in the game, which is obviously why they've come to that decision. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm thinking a lot about it at the moment. We chatted about it on our podcast, but I, I don't know what the right answer is. I'll, um, I'll have to keep thinking on that one. Now, we look at sport and culture uh, generally heavily influenced by the United States. You know, it's almost whatever they do, we sort of follow. Um, it's interesting to see what's happening in women's sport right now. There's some big investors coming into games and sporting games, and they can't get enough of it. Some of it more recently, the WNBA raised $75 million US dollars, uh, funding around from uh, investors back in February. The US Women's Soccer League, uh, Angel City, has, has raised, sorry, Angel City have raised a series of uh, around $100 million. We also look at League One Volleyball, $16.5 million for a round. So there's people left, right and centre throwing big bucks into the sport. Um, Chloe, from your perspective, what do you think is happening here? Considering some of those investors, uh, people like Kevin Durand and Billie Jean King, so what do you think they're noticing um, to, to put their money where their mouth is, so to speak? Yeah, I think um, I love the Angel City example. It's one of my goals. I'd love to one day be an investor in Angel City. I think what they've done uh, with that organization has been incredible and, and some of the names behind it um, are, are quite amazing and, and icons in sport who've really backed it. Um, I think what investors like that are starting to see is is the commercial viability of women's sport. And if you look at it in comparison to men's sport and men's leagues that have existed over decades now, women's sport is still in its infancy. And I think there's this real exponential room for growth. And if you if you look at a, an organization like Angel City, they've had sold out stadiums already because they've, they've invested a huge amount into their marketing so that people in LA know who this team is, they know who these players are and they can't wait to go and support them. So they've done a great job at kind of building this brand and the investors are going to, over time, see a return on that. Um, there's another great study that's come out from an Australian company called True North Research and what they do is they look into fans' emotional connections that they have with athletes and sporting teams. And what we see is a lot of the time Australian women's teams actually top that list, uh, the Australian women's cricket team. Um, as Aussie Sevens, we've we've been at the top of that list before. We know the Matildas often rank really highly because of their emotional connection that fans can have with these players. So it's things like 
trust and pride and respect. And what we see a lot of the time is that female athletes have a greater sense of, of trust and pride and respect with their fans because of the way that female athletes carry themselves both on the field and away from the field. You don't often read stories in the, in the newspaper about female athletes getting into trouble. It's probably, that would probably be the one way we would get stories in the newspaper if things like that happened, right, is, is if you did something wrong. But you see those stories all the time from these male athletes and I think that's where there's a unique difference. And, and they took that study a step further in terms of the relationship that that has for sponsors and investors in women's sport and women's sporting teams. So because fans of women's sporting teams have a greater emotional connection, the sponsors that partner with these teams actually get greater results. They get a greater return on investment. So do you think Australian uh, teams, women's teams and Australian women's sports people are taking enough uh, advantage of this? Are they leveraging this opportunity well enough at the moment? I don't, I don't know if it's, if it's the athletes and the teams that have the ability to leverage it themselves. I would argue that female athletes more broadly have to do more work to build their own brand and build their own profile because they don't naturally get it through that mainstream media and through those traditional channels. I think the biggest thing for me that needs to happen is the understanding from investors and sponsors of data like that that's coming out of True North Research for people like that to understand different case studies like Angel City but also understand the potential that they have to get a greater return on investment through partnering with these women's sports teams. And I think I'd really love to see continued investment to allow a greater product to come over time, even if we come back to that full-time example. If there's investment to allow female athletes to be full-time athletes, at the end of the day, the product is going to be better. You're going to get more eyeballs and then you're going to get more money rolling in. So hopefully that continues. We've spoken a lot about investment, professionalism, sponsorship, engagement, all of that, Chloe. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here and, and put you on the spot. And, and this is a, a question uh, which is difficult to answer because it, it it's probably a different answer for um, nearly every different sport that we, we can talk about or consider. But Regarding women's pay, um, you know the 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 naysayers will say will say, well, they haven't got the same amount of bums on seats or eyeballs on TV, so they can never expect to be paid the same. What I want to ask you is, in broad terms, how far away do you see? Will that day come? How far away do you think it is, and is it justified? I think what it's really important to look at within that discussion is the access that female athletes have had over time um old mate steve price had a great crack um during the week and talked about the fact that high school uh boys football is better quality than aflw i would argue that some of those boys footballers should be better footballers than these aflw players i'm only in my fourth year of aflw so i think these boys who've played since the age of four years old probably should be better at football than i am and they've had access to the best coaches in football. Uh, they've never been told when they get to the age of 12 years old that you have to stop playing because you can't play contact anymore. And they've had those resources the entire way through to be able to come become the best footballers that they can become. So I think it's really important to take that into account when we look at this comparison between men's and women's sport. I think if you... Um, if we look at AFL versus AFLW in terms of the professional leagues, AFL players have been 
full-time professionals for however many decades now. And so that means they've had that long to build this level of competition and this level of growth. People so often look at the AFLW that's been around for six years. It's not a very long time and it's not even full-time. We're not even close to being full-time yet. So I think that's another important piece to look at that. The biggest thing that I want, I'm not out here saying I want to be paid $300,000 next year. The biggest thing that I'm advocating for, and I know my other teammates advocating for is to be paid enough that you don't have to work a second job. And I don't think that's a huge amount to ask is, is it'd be great to be paid enough so that I can play football and that's all I have to do from there. Like I've touched on the quality of the game continues to improve. You continue to get more people watching the game, more sponsors backing the game. But I really think there's got to be a level of foresight that, that goes into it, that investing in it now, you want to be a person who invests in it now and you want to get on board early rather than looking in 10 years' time and saying, I wish I got on then. Chloe, you just mentioned briefly there, paid enough so I don't need a second job. What ballpark figure would that be? I know that's different for everyone, different states, more expensive. You're living in Sydney, it's you know, more expensive than it is Adelaide, but is it 50 grand, 60 grand, 70 grand, 80 grand, 100 grand? What, what do you think would, you know, because I think once you get to that stage, the, the growth in AFLW has been phenomenal in what, six and a half seasons or, or where we're at right now. I think it would head north pretty quickly if we were able to get that. So what figure would that be? I I don't have a figure in mind. I think like you touched on, like if I'm living in Sydney, my cost of living's a, a lot higher than a lot of other states. But to me, 50 grand is not enough. It's You can't live these days and pay rent off 50 grand. So it's got to be... Well, that's your rent probably in Sydney, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it, it almost is, right? Like... It's, it's definitely got to be more than that. And I think that's, to me, that's the starting point is, is bringing everyone up. It's bringing the bottom tiers up to allow players to, to just do that. And from there, I think it can continue to build and, and continue to increase and expand. And I think what is really important to touch on as well is this, um, what you mentioned, Dee, on this kind of argument of is it justified that female athletes get equal pay I think it's really important to touch on probably things that aren't tangible that female athletes and and women in sport bring to the game. For example, the participation numbers that we're seeing at grassroots, that's not something that is is quantified uh, financially, but I think we've seen female athletes bring this this whole range of, of new young kids into the game that is all about the sustainability of the game for the future. And, and we also bring in new fans to the game as well. So I think there's this tricky balance of, again, always comparing these traditional metrics of broadcast numbers and, and ticket sales. But I think it's really important to factor in those components of it as well. Sorry, Dan. I think the other thing too to highlight too, and I know the Adelaide team, Port Adelaide sponsored by Santos, Crow sponsored by BHP. We've never seen mining in Adelaide particularly sponsor either Port or the Crows before this situation. So that there is extra money that's coming in, as you mentioned, in from a sponsorship perspective that. You know, footy clubs are the winners out of this and in, and everyone who wants to question the women why they're getting paid that big bumpers is that there's a lot more revenue than there was previously in the game because we're now got another product to sell. Yeah, and I think even what you've touched on there, like we saw the showdown between Port and, and the Crows and two very uh-huh, different teams. Uh-huh, like too Crows. soon, too soon, too soon. We only scored three points. Come on. 
I was gonna I was gonna give you some credit oh, in the fact of like expansion team first season in the comp up against three time premiership team right T- what twenty thousand plus people at the game like there's there's a desire for it people know that Port Adelaide are an expansion team and they've been struggling so far this season but they're rocking up and they're still watching this game because they want to see it and they want to see this rivalry that's existed for so many years and they want to see it in the women's game it's it's really cool. Well, thankfully, we've uh, we've taken the heat off the questions here a bit. We're gonna we're gonna kick, continue down that path, Chloe, and uh, and just uh, have a little bit of fun, hopefully, with uh, with a few uh, quick ones we like to fire at our guests um, towards the end. Chloe, um, who is the next big thing in women's sport, whether it be in Australia or globally, or you can give us both if you've got uh, got an answer for both. I'm gonna go in Australia, Mary Fowler, who plays for the Matildas. I think with the World Cup on home soil next year, she's kind of this this young up and coming player who's absolutely killing it. She's won multiple awards as a as a junior and as a rookie. I think she's signed for about four years with Man City. Um, I reckon she's kind of the next Sam Kerr, and I think. With this World Cup on home soil is going to be absolutely huge. So she's going to be my pick. Also, one criticism of criticism is that word I just asked, a women's sport that pisses you off the most from people, maybe like Steve Price. Probably Steve Price, I'll just name him. Um, (laughs) I think the argument of no one wants to watch women's sport, to me it's just so outdated and there's so much data that proves otherwise. We've seen it across... So many different sports, the the numbers and viewership just continues to build. So it's just it's just simply not true, and it's lazy. What about the uh, strangest or most awkward or bizarre sort of a business request that uh, you've had come your way? I don't know if it's a business request, but I reckon the strangest thing is people asking for my sweaty socks post game. <laughs> hey, it could be nowadays with eBay, couldn't it? <laughs> Uh, where will Australian women's sport be in 10 years I think in 10 years my hope is that every domestic league is full-time and like I touched on earlier I hope that brands and sponsors have got on board and invested in it early and they don't get 10 years down the track and think oh shit I should have done that sooner well Chloe uh, thanks so much for joining us today it really was a, a fascinating chat um, make sure that you uh, check in on the Female Athlete Project. You can uh, find out all about them at thefemaleathleteproject.com and follow them on Instagram too. And remember, there's a stack of great interviews lined up, so make sure you subscribe to the podcast and keep track of all the latest sport deals, the drama, and uh, follow us at thebigdeal.au. We'll look forward to catching up with you next time. Before you go, don't forget to join our community by subscribing for free at www.thebigdeal.au and get a weekly email bringing together the hottest sports deals, breaking sports biz news as it happens, and much more. Join me at www.thebigdeal.au.